and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 218. So last week, Stephen bought a really like cheap frequency generator. Uh, sorry, not a frequency generator. No, I, I, I totally wrote our notes wrong. It, it's a, uh, a frequency meter. Counter. It, counter. Counter. That's it. Because it counts the waves. I, I, to, I totally wrote my notes wrong. Yeah, I know. I looked at that. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it, but like, yeah, my head was on autopilot. Yeah. Um, and you were going to look into hacking it for adding the ability to record measurements. Yeah. So I actually, well, uh, Parker gave me um, homework to actually go do that. He said, I expect by next podcast, this one, <laughs> that, I'll, that I'll have something. And I do. I have something. Like, not a finished thing, but I have something. <laughs> so I, I, I cracked. Okay, so actually a couple Are we of giving things. awards for partial credit? Uh, I'm totally reaching for the stars right here. I expect <laughs> a, a sticker at the end of this. <laughs> so I did, I did crack the counter open. Uh, and it is as much of a piece of shit as as we expected. Um, no, don't get me wrong. It's it's a hundred dollar Amazon wonder. It's what we can expect, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, so I have something before before I get into it. I actually have something that's interesting about it. Remember, I was complaining about it. it didn't settle very nicely. Like mm -hmm. it it had the 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 values jumped around a little bit, and and I, you know I'm splitting hairs because the values jumped around. Like in the ten, the thousandth decimal place on you know like I'm reading a hundred point oh five six, and the sixth digit is jumping around. It's flipping from a six to a seven every so often. Yeah, well, maybe a little bit more than that, but I, but you know, I of course I hate it when it does that, and I was complaining about that. So I cracked open this thing, and it has like an individual. Well, it has three PCBs in it. it has the main PCB that uh, is obviously doing all the actual counting. It has a secondary PCB that has all the display digits on it. And then a third PCB that uh, the BNC connectors are directly soldered to. And it's like the input, I guess, preamp or whatever. It, it does all the input handling because there's um, a variable attenuation and things like that. So it, it's handling all the input stuff. So that board, it was supposed to have or be completely surrounded by uh, metal shielding. Uh, mm -hmm. I opened it up and it had a metal shield on the top side of the board and the bottom side of the board, but only like the very corners of one side of the cans were soldered and it was like clamshelled open. I guarantee you it was doing zero shielding whatsoever. That's a unit that someone tested that failed and someone opened it up to fix it. No, like the pads weren't even soldered. And what it was was whoever was assembling it just did an awful job, didn't solder any of the points, basically just tacked it on and shipped it, you know? Like, guarantee it was not tested. Do China factories have Friday 430 units? Yeah, this sounds was like a totally Friday 430 that. unit. Yeah, so, so I, well, okay. It, because I had to disassemble everything in order to get to the what I was really looking for, which was the LED driver or the display driver on the front board. So the design of this device was clearly meant to never be taken apart because like the stack up of how all the boards and everything kind of fit together was 
like soldered in place. Like the mm-hmm. boards were put in, then everything was soldered. You really can't get it apart. I had to do some destructive things to get it apart. <laughs> and I and like when I was taking it apart, like the button caps that actually you know fit on everything. Uh, they're just held in place. It's just like an interference fit with the switches and things like that. So if one of those falls inside the chassis, you have to like desolder it all just to like fix the buttons on the front. (laughs) (laughs) This is a one-time assembly device. So what I was doing was foolish, but, but okay. So back to that preamp or the input board or whatever you want to call it, conditioning board. I, I re-soldered and reseeded all of the shielding, and it's significantly better now. Like, it settles nicer. And and previously, if if I didn't have anything connected into the BNC, it would sit there reading 60 hertz. Go figure, right? Mm-hmm. So now it just it's rock solid at zero because it's actually shielded, which is nice. So, you know, all of what I was going for with reading the information and, and averaging it is a little bit moot now that I actually have like proper shielding in there, <laughs> but I still want to, you know, investigate it a little bit further. So, uh, so on that front display board on the back side of it is a, is a IC that's socketed in and, and from it's socketed. Yeah, no, it's actually socketed. This is not the SMD version. Uh, not entirely sure what, well, no, I guarantee you it was because for some reason the dip version was cheaper. That's got to be the only reason. Every design decision in this thing was because it was cheaper. Yeah, that's the thing is it's only... I bet you if you took... If you take that chip off, was there an SMD pad underneath it? I haven't pulled it off yet. Okay, so okay. Maybe. I bet you I there's... Because I'm looking at the part right now. You haven't... What's the part number? So the part for this is ZLG7289BS. And from what I had researched before cracking open my unit, people were saying that this is was a PIC microcontroller. This is not at all a PIC microcontroller. This is like a, a gosh, you used to have a term for this, Burger, like ancient Chinese mystery ICs. Oh, uh, it was like ancient Chinese uh, micro, uh, what, ancient Chinese micro, uh, circuit secret? I can't remember. That was like way back in episode like 10 no like the 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 very first day i started at at macrofab like you showed me some kind of list where like you were compiling ancient chinese data sheets or something like these like super secret indiana jones like going deep in the cave to find the data sheet for these this is totally one of those parts though oh yeah this is absolutely one of those parts this is that part where if you search the part number on on google you don't you get a whole bunch of uh, uh gray gray market websites and just some like random stuff. It's on um, LCSC. Well, it is, yeah. And and that's actually where I was able to find the data sheet for this. Unfortunately, the entire data sheet is in Chinese. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> well, but I found a, I found a website that that you can just upload PDFs and they'll translate it and kick it back out. So I totally did that, and I have a pseudo English version of the data sheet now. And so from last week, Parker was guessing that it is an SPI uh, based chip that just drives all the displays. And you're absolutely right on that. Woohoo! So the main processor, which is down on the main board, just shoots a bunch of SPI up to this chip. And then this chip handles everything on the front board, driving all the displays. 
Uh, so th this IC is also a keyboard scanner too, so it it can do in in out, but they're just using it as a displayed. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at that the uh, schematic right now. Yeah, on so on page seven of the data sheet, which we will, uh, I guess we can have the data sheet or post a link to it or something like that. Uh, on page seven, there's a, a fairly nice little schematic that's just like, oh, okay, great. So like, here's all my ins and my outs and things like that. I just remembered what I called it: ancient Chinese semiconductors. That's it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's it. I went as soon as I got this data sheet. I was like, "Yes, that's that's on that you know, list for I'm sure." I'm actually <laughs> looking for that list and I cannot find it. Oh damn! I would love to know, I've, like, because I know you and I looked at that list a handful of times. Because that list was all. I, I bet you it's it's living somewhere in my Google Drive in the the bowels of hell from back in 2014, <laughs> right when we came up with the idea for the podcast. Like we were talking about, like, oh, we need to have a segment where we talk about ancient Chinese semiconductors. Yeah, like, we did. I th I, we talked about that on the podcast. I think. We, yeah, but like way early on. So yes, I, I was kind of excited to see this because it was just like, oh, this is this like old school right here. <laughs> so um, I I haven't dug too deep into the data sheet. The thing that sucks about this data sheet is it's like. It's kind of like a, you know, the first page is just like a picture, basically, of things. The second page is electrical data and like the absolute maximums. Page seven is a schematic, and then all the rest are just registers, and that's it. And yep. not a whole lot of good information on like, oh, this does this. It's more just like register maps. So it's kind of the crappiest way of having to reverse engineer because you just have to look at a register map and say like, oh, well, what's that doing? So if I see that, here's what that's doing. You know, it, it doesn't seem to have, or at least just like on a first glance, it doesn't seem to have like a, if you want to write this, here is this, you know? I think it's, I, oh, I've done a lot of like, low level C work. This is pretty standard. Yeah, um, I mean I I've I've done a bit too. It's just like there's not like a there's not a clear portion in the data sheet that looks like to write a number, here's what you do. You know? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm not seeing. Uh you want like a well they do have that. It's just an assembly. <laughs> well yeah, okay, so back at the at the end. At the very end is actually assembly, which I'm gonna guess is probably uh that looks like maybe um what was it? Uh what's that core? Eighty fifty one? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably eighty fifty one yeah. assembly. But like all of the comments on it are translated. So some of them make sense, like delay 10 microseconds. That totally makes sense. But then like some of the other ones are like by ZLG 7289A receiving a byte of data, the previous high. Like, <laughs> thanks. Now I have to actually read the code to figure out what you're talking about. I think the most important thing is actually the, on page six, you've got a timing diagram. Yep. And with that, you can easily just reverse engineer the protocol. You don't need anything else. You know that, like, chip select goes low, and was it uh, data is valid on clock high, high? It looks like yeah, clock high. Yeah, and then you and then with a little bit of information above it, it looks like it's doing it in uh, eight bit to sixteen bit bursts. Yeah, right. And and I can I can hook up my logic analyzer. And basically, look at what's displayed on the front, 
and then figure out what that actually was. Yeah. So that's what I would do. Th- I mean, that that is the next step. It's just not like I. It's a little bit of reverse engineering as opposed to just like looking at this chart. Oh yeah, and yeah figuring yeah. it out. So, luckily, it doesn't look too ridiculous. It's just a few hours of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the idea is to just take something as simple as an Arduino and connect it to those lines, the uh, SPI lines, and then just sniff off what I'm seeing there. And as soon as as soon as I can sniff it off and like accurately figure out what the data is intended to do, then everything after that is really simple. You know, just interpret and modif- translate into whatever I want it to be, which is just averaging, basically. <laughs> this is a lot of work for just averaging values. Well, you can have, but you have a lot more stuff down. Now you can do, you can record over a long period of time. Right. right. So you can see drift and that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, th- th- there's, there's, a, there's a bit more behind it that makes this a little bit more powerful. And actually, if it's just an Arduino and four lines, um, this could be a, a pretty cool little thing to just post as a hack for these things mm-hmm. uh, to put online in case anyone else wants to do it. So I bet you a lot of people would like to to do that, especially if you can basically say for a sub hundred dollars, you can get a frequency counter that has data does, logging. Yeah, that has that da- uh, data recording. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so um, yeah, I'm look I'm looking forward to that because basically when you solve that, I'm probably going to do it. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, uh, the, the the best part about it is like all the garbage about having to like break it all apart and, you know, all the all the desoldering. You don't have to do any of that. If you just pull the lid off, that IC is available from the back side of the board. Uh, I haven't I haven't figured out what pins are there, but um, one half of the IC is really easy to get to. The other half is a little bit more difficult, but not like impossible or anything. I wonder, is there a way you could pop the chip out and then sandwich a PCB in between it? Yeah, there's tons of vertical space, so you could cool. totally do that. Because that's um, a lot of modifications for old old equipment that are dip-socketed parts, yeah. is you pull the old chip out, and then you put a PCB that's got pins in it into the old socket and then plug your chip back in, and that way you can sniff all the signals correctly. Actually, that would—that's a great idea. Like, if I get this all working, I'll totally design up a little uh, daughter board for that. That, um, yeah, it, you could just have four wires soldered to that daughter board and then plug those right into your Arduino. Yep. Yeah, that's a great idea. Totally do that. So last week I was talking about my 3D printer, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I ordered all the parts. Still waiting on them. <laughs> oh, I thought so, you were going to say like something caught on fire or something like that. No, 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 not yet. Um, so yeah, I'm still waiting on parts. It's kind of partially disassembled. I'm still trying to figure out a solution for the cable management. Um, mainly because I got like I had that loom. I have mm. some split loom, and that the that two by ten wide connector. It's like a ribbon cable. Just doesn't work. And so I'm trying to think if I can just replace that. With um, yeah, I talked about last week, like a round cable, a two by yeah. ten round cable, like make a custom one or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd look into that more. Probably do that tonight. Take you know, apart. one of the things we were talking about last week was um, uh, lubrication and grease ah, for it. Yeah, a lot of people were commenting on that. On yeah, I was Slack noticing channel. that. I read that earlier today in the in the Slack channel. There was a lot of uh, good ideas behind that. What'd you end up yeah. going with? So I went with. 
because uh, people were like sewing machine oil was yeah. really good or um, uh, lithium grease is what your suggestion was. Yeah. And a couple actually other people who do CNC work were suggesting it. Uh, Super Lube 51004 is what a lot of people use as well. Um, and then someone mentioned that they use, uh, what is it? Um, Hop number nine. No, that's what I ended up using. Oh, really? <laughs> but they use Break Free, which was got me on Hops number nine. So Break Free is like a specialized uh, gun lubricant. Yeah. But it's a really good light oil that's a penetrating fluid as well. It's actually really nice for because it just gets in everywhere. So it's really good it's for like small oil. roll pins and stuff where you need a a uh, when you have a, a, lo- a lot of movement over. Uh, small surface areas that are really hard to get lubricant into, like getting a lithium grease in there or any kind of grease would be really hard. Yeah. Break free is really good because it's a kind of a penetrating fluid and it'll just like soak everything in it, in it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, huh, one of hops number nine, which is like the generic gun cleaner. That's like Walmart gun oil. Yeah. It's like that. Everyone's got everyone. That's a, uh, that uh, owns guns has it because it's like it's like comes in your starter set for cleaning guns. Yeah, because right. it's good at cleaning and it leaves a protective oil finish that works fine for just general lubrication for your 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 uh, uh, handguns and, and rifles. Mm-hmm. So I use that and it works. <laughs> nice. Now longevity wise, no idea, but it cleaned all the old stuff off and left a nice smooth finish and left a little thin oil on it and it seems to work great just out of curiosity um were you did it make any difference in like sound it is quieter is it cool yeah mainly because it was i was starting to see it's you won't see it in this print but i can see it but you can see it has a little bit of a step here Oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that. Like at the the bottom, like half millimeter of one of his prints. Yeah, it, it's has actually an edge. it's actually shifted over, and that's because it missed a step. Hmm. And um, and usually it, since I have never changed the settings on this printer, it's always run at the same speed. And it's well under the speed rating. It's basically the friction's building up, and it missed a step. That's interesting. So, um, cleaned it up, and that went away. Because it would happen at random spots in a print. Basically, this, the printer would make a really weird noise, and you look at it, and it would look fine. And then you pull your print out, and it's got this weird step in, step in the Z. Oh, that's super annoying. Yeah. So, that's, that's all fixed now. So that worked. Now, would I advocate this to anyone? No. What, using Hops number nine? I haven't looked online if anyone's ever used it for long-term success, but it seems to be working great now. It could be eating my bearings alive, and I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's super corrosive. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's a gun oil. It's not, I mean, it's not really It's not corrosive. corrosive. Yeah. So. But it could, like, be trashing it and, and causing more wear. It just sounds, usually when a bearing surface sounds quieter, generally that means it's better. I mean, you had an inflection on your voice like you're asking a question. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. We're electrical engineers. Yeah, we don't we don't deal in the goopy stuff. The goopy stuff. (laughs) So, I'll 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 post back in a year if hops number nine is the way to go. That could be the like the winning formula because it's a cleaner and a oil built in because it it cleaned all the old varnished oil off, 
Um, so I'm pretty happy with it so far. We'll see. Nice. On uh, on on that uh, M1 Garand that I bought uh, a year ago or two years ago now, the um, like you originally it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, it, it, it wasn't oiled. It was greased. So I actually ended up buying. Uh, what is it? Mobile One, just like the red automotive grease, because that stuff is like pretty close to the original grease that the M1 was with, you know, was, you know, lubed up with, and yeah. uh, that stuff is pretty great for two surfaces moving against each other, which is exact. Like the M1 has plenty of moving uh, parts like that. So that's actually some people's thoughts is to use a heavy grease so it sticks around mm-hmm. on your printer on the sliding surface because it, it really depends. Um, well, that's why, that's why the lithium grease came to mind right away. Yeah. And like the CNC that I, uh, that I run at work, like whenever I grease it, that stuff is pretty viscous. I mean, that stuff yeah. is, is like earwax. So, so I think it's just different school. So the, the, the hop summer nine is working great. Yeah. So we'll see. It's a $450 printer. <laughs> so if I if it gets trashed, it won't. It's not the end of the world, right? Right, right. Unless I'm printing like COVID nineteen ventilators, then it would be the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I shouldn't joke about that, but yeah, I I hope everyone's safe. Me too. I'm actually staying home today because I I'm not feeling fantastic. So, uh oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I've I've You're kind of had that, like that... this persistent headache. Uh, ah, yeah. is uh, your wife just throwing beer and food down the, the stairs there into your basement? <laughs> I designed a little beer elevator that comes down right yeah. to my desk. It's just the size of a uh, a TV tray yeah. comes down. Man, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> no, it should be your fridge. You should have a, your fridge should be on a freight elevator. Or just the bottom of the fridge just comes down into the basement. <laughs> comes down in the basement. <laughs> now, I can't remember what movie it is. And I've always wanted to build this. It, it, might, it might even exist, it, like a thing. But I, it was a 70s or 80s movie. And it was a refrigerator that was round. And, you, and the person pressed the button and it pops out of the counter. So it's completely round. It looks like a like a, one of those spinning spice racks. Yeah. Except it's a refrigerator. It's bigger than a spice rack too, and it pops up, and you can like grab stuff off of it, and then you press another button, and it goes back down into the the counter. Now, you lose like all your cooling capacity when it pops out, and all the air you know goes everywhere <laughs> yeah. into the room. It's not very efficient. Well, normal refrigerators aren't either. You open it up, and your feet get cold. Yeah. All the air, all the cold air just fell out of your refrigerator. <laughs> that, that, that seems like something that would have been in um, 2001, A Space Odyssey, you know? Could be. I don't remember what movie it is, and I haven't found it since. So with the power of the 6,000 plus people that listen to this podcast. So, someone knows. Yeah. So uh, let me know on Twitter or Slack. You know, <laughs> back when I was in college, um, a, a, a buddy I that I knew actually designed a beer launcher that was, uh, that was connected to his fridge. Like it had like a, like a pneumatic auto loader. Yeah. It it had like, he would fill his, his, um, uh, fridge. It it had a magazine, like a beer magazine. And, uh, and he had these little discs 
that were like different colors and stuff like that. And you could hold up the disc and, and the, the fridge would see it and it would launch a beer at the, at the <laughs> disc. <laughs> he spent a ton of time making this beer launcher just so that like it could, he wouldn't have to get up from his couch. Yeah. He could sit on the couch and just lift this disc up and, th- and it would shoot a, <laughs> a beer. at him. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Except, I mean, the beer was like super foamy when it got to you. <laughs> <laughs> you had to vinyl wrap your couch then. Yeah. Well, um, so remember that uh, the macro amp that I designed beginning of last year? Or Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, not just last year. I mean, I did five years ago or whatever, but I've, I've, I finally built it. Yep. It's the one with the new tube. Right, right. One, one of the things that, that didn't go well in that design was some of the rotary switches that were in there. I have rotary sw- three rotary switches that were that controlled the um, the volume, but also like the balance between left and right, and everything in the amp worked well except the rotary switches were wired incorrectly or the footprint was incorrect because I didn't actually have those foot switches. Yeah, you had to hand. guess, and I and I guessed and I guessed wrong. Such. <laughs> so i actually have a project coming up here soon that's sort of like a mini quick little thing that that i'm going through and i'm using those switches and i'm being a good boy this time around and i actually earlier today bought two of those switches in different varieties and i'm not touching anything until i get them in hand and i'm actually going to like measure them and because i was thinking about it like i could make generic footprints where like you could put it in any direction and it would work but i I don't want to do that like i want it to be like just right from the get go. Yes. And so like I'm I'm taking a I'm doing it right from from you know from the beginning here. So um whenever that comes in I'm I'm I'll actually take a couple of pictures of it because every data sheet seems to con- uh, contradict itself for this particular type of rotary switch. And hmm. this is the cheapest rotary switch out there. Uh I actually really like them. They feel nice and they last a long time and they're beefy. They're just enormous so your your uh what your project has to be able to handle the size you know which whatever i don't care this project doesn't really particularly matter i'm I'm actually making a um i'm making little uh design like sort of development boards for some uh projects i'm working on with a buddy of mine where i want to be able to switch in a variety of different capacitors and these are perfect for that one of them is a what is it? It's a, it's a two pole six position, and the other one is a one pole twelve position, and twelve different cap values is more than enough for what I'm looking for, and these things are like a little bit over a buck, which is great for that. Um, so, but just I don't want to like make these nice boards and go through all the trouble and then figure out that the footprint was upside down or something stupid like that. <laughs> yeah, you know? or like, like pins were in the wrong place. That made me so mad when I got those boards. So. You know, I w- if I could, I would do that for every component on. Um, we have to put the projects. part numbers up on our. Uh, you know, the, the the thing about these switches that are annoying is like a bunch of people sell them. SparkFun sells them. I bought these from Tubes and More, uh, Amp, uh, Mauser stocks them and stuff, and they have different part numbers at every place. Hmm. Uh, they're the they're that kind of component. You know, they're an ancient Chinese rotary switch. You know, okay, so have you ever searched for rotary switches before? Have you ever had a need for that? Kind of. Not as intensively as you, you like. So for the the Wagoneers, like, um, 
uh, the mirror switches I built, those are actually rotary encoders. I'm not using the rotary encoder parts. Yeah. But they're, they have encoders. So like for a project, not really. I have used them. So my answer would be no. Well, okay. So <laughs> we've, we've talked about selecting components a bunch of times and like, yes, you know, searching for connectors sucks. Uh, yes. Searching for capacitors is okay. Searching for resistors is usually pretty easy. Searching for rotary switches really sucks, if you ask me. Just because, like, they're hard to find. There's not a lot of stock, in my opinion. They go from, like, a dollar to $20. Instantly, with no reasoning in between. Yeah. And and they don't seem to have a lot of rhyme and reason between. Like, a lot of other electromechanical components, like, they fit within paradigms that work between manufacturers rotary switches play by their own damn rules like all the time like there's not one that plays nice by everyone else's rules so the, I, I i try like you can't not find like what's the what's the footprint i know borns makes a lot of them but i know a lot of other manufacturers do it's like that potentiometer footprint that's got like two lugs that's straight it's a vertical potentiometer that solders onto the board yeah a lot of a lot of um uh, stomp boxes and stuff use them, but it's like that same footprint that's got three. The oh, the terminals are all in the same spot. Everything's the same size. They have the same kind of links, and yeah. a lot of manufacturers build those kind of potentiometers. To, right. No one builds a rotary switch like that. Exactly. Like okay, BI Technology Alpha. Uh, there's there's a ton of other people that make that exact pot, and what's nice about it is like not only not only is it all standardized, it's standardized around nice numbers like ten millimeters. Like that's a yeah. really nice number. Try to find a rotary switch that fits in ten millimeters. It doesn't exist, you know, and, and probably because people don't have lots of needs for rotary switches, and everyone's needs are going to be pretty different. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, a very custom part. I get that, but it's also like if you have a a situation where a rotary switch would work well, it'd be like, ah, oh, man, come on! Like I really wish I could just get a rotary switch for this situation without having to go get something custom. Like as soon as you have to go get something custom, then it's just nah, it, through the roof. It's such a pain. I, yeah. You know, it's funny. You'd be surprised how many designs I've done and even stuff at work where we're like, okay, so how can we electrically switch these signals to simulate a rotary switch by using an encoder and a processor as opposed to finding a rotary switch? Like we've yeah, done yeah. that before because it's that's easier. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it ends up being more expensive. I don't know, whatever. So... I, I, you know, I'm doing it right this time. I'm getting the the rotary switch before I design the product. <laughs> <laughs> so, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about the brewery. Yeah, it will probably because of, you know, COVID nineteen. Um, so missing parts. Excuses. That's all I'm hearing. Yeah, is excuses. 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 Parker Brewery 2021. <laughs> it won't be ready for April 4th, which was my anniversary of the first time i brewed oh right we talked years about and years ago yeah but i did get the brackets for the pumps printed yeah so they're all done. they look beefy as hell they're really beefy they're like 50 percent infill three wall so it's like 1.2 millimeter wall thickness total polycarbonate like the sun will supernova and these will still be on this planet <laughs> uh that's how beefy they are yeah. um so I got them all printed, and I got the 
the uh, quarter 20, three quarter inch long bolts pressed into them. And so uh, tonight I am going to bolt a pump to it and bolt it underneath onto the uh, countertop and actually maybe bend the first tube tonight. We'll Ooh. see. Hopefully. I've been wanting to actually, especially like with this work from home stuff, it's like, man, wouldn't it be awesome to work from home and have a home brew when you're done? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice. Man, I want a beer. <laughs> I want a homebrew now. Yeah, I want a homebrew so bad. I've wanted a homebrew ever since the July last year when I was up at your place. Yeah. And we drank your brown ale. And I'm like, oh yeah. Homebrew. That you know what's funny? So um I ran out of CO2, but I never really emptied that keg, so it's still sitting over there, <laughs> probably uh, super flat. I mean, it's in a fridge, so it's cold. And like, well, is it still under pressure? Probably. Then yeah, it's still gonna have CO two in it. Yeah, it's. Just, I bet you. I doubt it's more CO two. Push that out. I bet you that's pretty good still. I don't know. Oh, that's that's some old old beer. <laughs> oh, it could be. It depends on how. much. It's not a hoppy beer, so you could. It, no, aged. no, this one was a super hoppy beer. I put I put uh, a lot of hops in this. It had oh. eight hops in the in the boil, or eight ounces of hops in oh, the that's boil, a lot and then brown three ale. ounces in uh, in dry hopping. So it's plenty hoppy. That's a lot for a brown ale. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not good anymore. Yeah, probably. You well, should taste it. That's your homework for this week. <laughs> taste that. <Ooh. laughs> taste that. Gross. Maybe I'll maybe I'll post a picture on. Uh, um, Who knows? It could be really slack. good. It's like when we open up that last bottle of that oh. stout we made. Yeah. At Stephen Galena's, which was an old. I think we talked to him a couple times on the podcast. We actually talked old, about him last uh, week. Yeah. Employee on the po- on uh, Macrofab, and we went out to his um, lease, not lease, uh, farm. Yeah. Land out in middle nowhere, Texas, and um, we brought our last bottle of this beer we brewed. Stephen and I it was like, I, I don't think it was the first beer we brewed, but it was the first time we ever entered a competition. Yeah, and like we did really well for not. Basically, we got our our beer was disqualified for being the wrong style because we used Australian hops instead of American hops. Right. When it was supposed to be an American beer, it was supposed to be an American stout. But so we made an Australian stout. Yeah. Okay. And it was, it was, it was good. Amazing, it was a really good beer. Yeah. And we had one bottle left that was at that point two years old, if not more. Yeah, I think it was two years at that point. And man, it was like you know how like old cheese gets that, <laughs> like old cheddar gets that grit to it. That's awesome. I was about to say I don't want my beer to taste like old cheese. No, it didn't taste like cheese. But so old <laughs> cheese, like a ten-year cheddar. Gets this like grit to it. This cheddar cannot be fired. (laughs) So old, old, really old aged cheese gets this like really cool texture, grittiness to it. It almost was like that to me, like, and it was it was so good. Oh, it was delicious. (laughs) We really need to, uh, we really need to brew that beer again. The problem is though, is I. I've been putting together this brewery rig. My new mash tun cannot hold that much. Grain. Yeah. So we have to use. I, I'm, I'm we we keep, have to go old school, man. Yeah, I'm going to keep it just for the mashing that one beer. Oh yeah. 
So we'll mash in that and then put it back into the uh, new brew kettle. But Although, like, I'm like, man, because I can only hold 15 pounds of grain in my new. Yeah, this was like 32 pounds. This is 30, 30. Yeah, 32 pounds. And I can, no, I can hold 18 pounds in my new mash rig. Yeah. Which is 18 pounds is a lot for a beer. It, yeah, well, 18 pounds uh, worth of volume ends up being like a massive amount of grain. And then you get it super wet. And it's yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah. So like 15 pounds of grain is for, let's say if you're doing a five gallon beer is that's a really big beer. Mm. And for a 10 gallon batch, that is still a pretty big beer. But then, yeah, I don't know if we ever told the story of how we brewed that beer. Oh, I, I I think we've probably told it like four or five times. Our, our listeners times. are probably like, oh, this again. Uh, <laughs> but I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll let we'll let the if if we haven't told that story before, someone let us know, and then we'll tell the story. Yeah, no, it's it's you know okay. So we we really need to brew it again sometime, but we have to start at like seven in the morning. Not yeah, because we started that beer at like after work on a Friday. I got home at like four in the morning. Yeah, it was brutal brew day. Oh, but it's like awesome, Stephen. Because like we had to like. Because we, we needed, like, eight weeks to ferment, like, condition it and ferment it and stuff. And, like, we're, like, it is eight weeks away before the competition ends. Yeah. We need to brew tonight. So we went out, got all the ingredients, and we got to my place at, like, 6.30 p.m. on a Friday and started brewing. And it was, like, 1 o'clock in the morning, and we're, we were in an ice to <laughs> cool down the wart. And so it seems like a, like, corner store. And so we like Steven tore off in his truck, went and get ice. Steven said he was the only soul alive in that whole area. Cause I, I at that point I lived in the, like the bad part of Houston. <laughs> oh, this, this guy gave me the weirdest looks. Cause I run into the convenience store at one in the morning and I grab like 10 bags of ice <laughs> and I'm like sweating. This guy's like, what the hell is this kid doing? Yeah, and I, I lived, at that point, I lived in the bad part of Houston. Yeah. So it part was really weird. Yeah, so it's like, oh, he's doing some shady stuff here. Yeah. Ten, but, but like, I think it was like 100 pounds of ice. I got to keep this organ alive. Yep, yep. Ah, good, good stuff. times. Yeah, we have to brew. When, when you're back in Houston, we'll have to brew it again. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. wait till this virus goes away, and then maybe we'll figure something out. Yep. I was actually supposed to come in... April sometime, but uh, yeah, that's probably not happening now. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So, oh well, sometime. So I got something I want to talk about real quick that uh, is, I don't know, like I don't want this to be a complaint. I want this to be more of just like, I want to see if if your situation is the same or if other people's are. So uh, I deal a lot with uh, ST Micro. And uh, and I'm you know I'm, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a fanboy, but uh, you know pretty much all of our micros at work are ST. I, I do a bunch of ST stuff on my own here, so like I, I'm I'm in bed with ST. Let's put it that way. I, I like them a lot, but their website is super freaking annoying. When it and and I've noticed this is kind of a trend with. Uh, the people who provide services and, and applications for microcontrollers and things like that. Why do I always have to log in to my account with all this stuff just to download your, you know, utility program or whatnot. And 
why is that whole situation annoying as hell? You know, what I mean by that is like, because you never remember your password. You never, you never remember your password. Uh, and, but and and it's like, well, okay, so you go to like ST Link V two or whatever, and and the page looks, frankly, kind of crappy. And then you get down to the bottom where it's like download this button and you click that button and then like another pop-up shows up and then it's like, please log in. And then like, you can't remember and then you got to go somewhere else. And, and the, one of the reasons why I'm complaining about this is I've had to install this on my computer, I've, but I do manufacturing with, with a, a handful of other people. I have to install it on, on operators, computers. Uh, I've, I had to do that a handful of times at, at, uh, um, Macrofab. When it comes down to getting like whatever your, their tools are, uh, it why do I why do I like what does it matter? Why do I have to log in just to get your thing? And then why do I have to prove my email address? What, like if you want me to use your thing, why do I have to go through all these extra steps? Like what are you gathering? That's the part that I'm a little so bit that a about. salesperson can call you. To but sell I've never your chips. had like it, but I've never had any of that, and I've never known anyone who's had any of that. Like I mean, maybe maybe we're not big enough you know, fries for them to care about, but uh, I don't know. It just seems super Their, their algorithm has determined you're not buying a hundred thousand chips. Well, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, but what this kind of rem uh, brings up is I remember a Dave Jones video, an EV blog video from like way, way back um, where he was talking about documentation and Dave, Dave was, was saying like one of the, hallmarks of a good engineer is having good documentation and i totally absolutely agree with that in every possible way like engineers can get so caught up and so locked up in their in their like engineer minds that they forget to be clear and they forget to like understand that someone else has to sometimes interpret what they're like spewing out and this is this is less of me complaining about engineers and more of me trying to encourage like try to think of your audience and try to think of the person who's ingesting the information that you're spewing out. And I, and you know, I know nothing about ST micro and their website and who designed it or whatnot, but like to me, like this kind of user experience and, and interface and things and like trying to figure out what is it that I need to download and where is it like, cause if you try to go, I was trying to get their DFU downloader the other day. Mm-hmm. And like they don't have it in a good spot, and I found it through Google as opposed to going to their website. And it's not called like <laughs> this is our DFU programmer. It's called like STM dash dash POG or something. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it has yeah. a name like that. That's a great example of it not making sense, and a great example of the documentation not being clear. And so, like you know, once again, I want to make it clear that i'm not just trying to like crap on st micro i'm just trying to say like this is a great example where it's like clarity makes a lot of sense and mm -hmm. it's been my experience that the microcontroller guys are super unclear uh it i don't know it, what what is what are your thoughts on that no i totally agree it's it's um i i tend to be you know from working with me for so long is i tend to be the person that's like like I want to get the MVP out as fast as possible. Yeah. I don't care about the documentation right away. Right. Documentation is very important, but only like two or three revs down the road. Because how I view it is, no, this is how I view it. Document, good documentation takes a long time to do 
correctly. Yes. I maintain the knowledge base at MacFab. So I like documenting stuff is what I do. Yeah. But when you do a MVP and you're changing stuff so rapidly, it's one of those you got to think, is it worth the wait to release this till documentation is done or do you just release it because you're going to change it in two weeks or less? You got, at least that's how I view it. Um, so, like, I'm like damned torpedoes without the documentation at first. And then once we get a somewhat mature kind of thing going, then, yeah, document the hell out of it. Because then it's not changing all the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see that. And I think that that works well in uh, when when your your project size is is small to medium and your engineering count is small. Yes. Uh, I, I think in an ideal situation, documentation is is walking hand you know, step and step with with design. Like oh, totally they're agree. either done by the same person or they're done very closely with whoever in, is actually making your document. In an ideal world, ideal world here, documentation should drive the design. Uh yeah, well, right. Yeah. Well, I mean they, they one one is in front of the other, but only by a slight amount. Yes. You know? In the ideal world, I've never I've never seen that actually work. <laughs> <laughs> like I've never seen that actually implemented ever. You know, so I worked at a place that we were ISO controlled. So it it's sort of the opposite of what you were saying where it's like, "Oh, well, you you kind of like forget about the documentation until rev 2 or 3." At this place, you couldn't rev until you had the documentation. So it was the exact opposite where the documentation mm. controlled everything. And maybe that was a little bit overly hyper-controlled. I mean, don't get me wrong. ISO 9001, I freaking love it. And it's, it's oh, yeah, great. Yeah. Uh, but if you're trying to be quick and nimble, it's uh, a roadblock. In, in some yeah, there's, ways, there's so. a good medium somewhere in between. And... I just viewed it as that's my job is try to be the quick and nimble right. on the team. And then, you know, I have um, a, another engineer who's the opposite way. He's the ISO 9000 kind of engineer, all documentation all the time. Mm. And so I try to fight the other way because you reach the middle point, which is where the good medium is at. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I view it is I got to fight this one way because this other person's fighting the other way. And then you, 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 because that's good. What's an engineer's job? To compromise. <laughs> Educated compromises, right? Yes. And so you have to have the other viewpoint when when your other teammates that way. And uh, Troy, if you're listening, that is you, by the way. <laughs> um, not complaining about it. That's just how 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 it works. So <laughs> I, you know, I fit way into the documentation side of things. Like I I would yeah. rather documentation be flawless than send something out that's not perfect you know mm -hmm. uh in fact i i would argue to say that i i actually enjoy the documentation side of engineering more than the design side like i like making all of those documents and like i like putting together the packages that tell people how to do things and how to do it well and uh it just the thing is i've worked on the other side of manufacturing enough like in other words reading other people's documentation i've worked on that side enough to just say like ah oh, pulling my hair out like to all engineers out there just remember 
you're not the only person who has to read your documentation. Documentation. Yeah. Like, in fact, you're the probably the least amount of people who are reading your documentation. So take the extra two seconds to be clear. And the biggest thing is don't assume anything. Don't assume that someone reading is inside your head. Like, yep. And engineering documentation is one of the few places in the world where you can just be like dry and cold and tell the entire story like word for word and people are okay with that. This is not creative writing here. This is like, assume I know nothing and your documentation has to tell me everything. Like, I think the hallmark of good documentation is that you can hand it to anyone who is slightly technical and they can get the entire picture from what you just handed them. They don't have any questions left for you. That's yep. sort of the big thing. And, you know, sort of back to that ST micro thing, like I, I don't know ST micros part numbers. So why should I have to go search for your part number to find your DFU programmer? Why? Like your documentation should say like, this is our DFU programmer. Here you go. Like, that's a great example of just like, <laughs> yeah. make it clear to me because yeah, sure. Everyone at your company knows your part number schemes. I'm a guy on Google. I don't know your part number scheme, you know, like don't assume that I do. <laughs> yep. Ah, fun stuff. Yeah. So we got one RFO today <laughs> is, um, this actually goes kind of in hand with uh what we were just talking about actually yeah. i didn't know that st micro conversation would go that far yeah go like that um <laughs> but yeah on that the reiterate on that is is there's a happy medium between the two points especially yeah. in product development and that's why i go the other way is because i have you know troy on my team is super rigorous and that is why I, why I, I wanted him on our team because he's so good at that stuff. But, you know, you got to get product out there so people can actually look at it and give you feedback. Yeah. It's also there, there's, a, there's a happy medium between doing things, you know, yep. to the T and time. Yes. And um, it's finding that happy medium is actually the really hard part. Yeah. Because um, that, that, that what's, that's what makes and breaks a product is uh the happy medium because if you're if you rush the gate and you have nothing and then someone gets the the the, the plastic brick in their hand and like how do i turn it on well <laughs> there you go <laughs> you know and 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 like i was saying earlier about being on the other side of manufacturing there's plenty of times i've received documentation where i read through all the documentation that the client sent and i i was seriously like wait is this is this everything H how do i make this like yeah. You haven't told me how to make this. Like, yeah, there's not it? all the information here, and you literally thought this was all the information you needed to give to me? Like, yep. how much between the lines am I supposed to read? <laughs> all of it. All. You're supposed yeah. to get your tarot card deck. Yeah. Right. And start... You have to do that for all your customers. Read, reading reading the, the lines on my palm? <laughs> yes. No, on their palm. On their palm, right. But they didn't yes. send a picture or a documentation or drawing of their palm. I just No, no, guess. no. You do it over Google Drive now or, or Google Hangouts. <laughs> Google Hangouts. <laughs> because you can't read their palm six feet away. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, one RFO. Okay, yeah. Relates to that, and it is from the... Uh, Chris Gamble posted this question on the... Is it the V Amp Hour subreddit? <laughs> yeah, if, if you're very English literal, language yes, is weird. the the amp hour subreddit. Uh, English language is weird. Um, and this is wanted practical app note suggestions. 
And I thought this would be a really cool topic to talk about real quick is if you had a, he's looking for suggestions on what you would like to see in app notes. And I guess, so Steven, since you do a lot with the analog world, what would you like to see in app notes for ICs that you generally work with? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's good. Okay, so like he has got he's got stuff like when do parasitics matter in your circuits? So if you have an let's say you have an op amp, when when do the parasitics of your your return loop actually matter for that op amp? Because most time, if you're like in the middle of all the specifications, probably doesn't matter. But if you're running on the bleeding edge or something, yeah, that might matter. So okay. Uh, I, I think I w- what I would do is is take a, a kind of a note out of Maxim's book because like we've talked about this multiple times. Maxim has awesome, awesome, awesome data sheets with app notes, and and what Maxim Some of my does, favorites. they do two things that are great in my opinion. They show a simple example that is like here's a op amp in a inverting configuration, just blah, like textbook stuff, and then they show an example that is. Uh, almost nearly complete or fully complete, like a thing, not like a sub circuit, not like a block, not like a thing that does like a, here's a multiplier or something like that. They'll show like, here's a multiplier that does this kind of sensing with this sensor. And here's the equations behind it. Like they show the full system. Uh, So I think both of those things are really good to have in an app note. Now I, I, you know, one thing I would also kind of temper that with, on the on the other side of things, uh, away from analog, on the digital side of things, I, I what I'd love to see is a full digital system. It doesn't have to be super complex, but like show me your chip with all of its peripheral components, and show me your chip connected to a processor or blah blah blah. Like it doesn't have to be super complex, but show me all of that in in one app note. That God, I love when I see that. I like, especially since I deal with the digital realm a lot and with programming, I like to see um, like almost like block diagram programming mm-hmm. is a good way. Like, um, especially if you have a initialization sequence for an IC, like it's an I square C chip and you have to send it uh, these series of commands to set stuff up. Like this actually goes back towards when you were looking at that Chinese data sheet is sure it just gives you all the registers which is fine but you have to know what order do you need to hit them in what's the initialization when you first boot that chip up yeah that kind of stuff clarity um, and documentation stuff yeah what kind of fi- configuration do you have and so having a a good like what's called pseudo code level documentation on the on the initialization code so that if you took this thing to any microcontroller and plugged it in and then wrote the equivalent of that pseudocode in whatever language, Python, it could be like MicroPython, it could be uh, C, it could be C++, whatever, or assembly, you would get something working. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to see in in my app notes. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree on that. Um, you know, an, another thing that I, I think is, uh, is cool is like when you see, uh, like take a processor data sheet, where you see a processor, but you see it in a, in a, like a, a known good condition. One where you see like even, even the power circuitry delivered to it. Uh, what I, what I like about that is first of all, it shows you like 
this is this is a circuit that will work if you build it but it also gives you ideas on like oh i haven't thought about uh you know this power good ic or something like that and here's an mm. example that even though my intent is to look at the processor i'm seeing these other peripherals that you guys have tested and and it's good it it gives more creative ideas in that sense i love seeing it that way yep yep you see that a lot in uh like usb stuff where like you'll see oh they did their their esd protection this way or they're filtering the shield this way why is that? And usually their app notes will explain why they did it that way, or you can email them. Usually they have a field application engineer that can tell you why they designed it that way. Yeah. Usually. You know, uh, actually, I, I think a good example is, uh, what's it called? Um, FTDI, the FT230X. You know, there's multiple modes that it has in terms of like power over USB or like self-power mm -hmm. or something like that. They have an example of each one of those. And, yep. and that's kind of nice to just see like real quick, like, oh, that's what they're getting at. You can always yep. explain it in a paragraph, but a paragraph and an image means like you've completely the world. It. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. We should get Chris Gamble back on. It's been a while since he's been on the it podcast. It has been. It's been probably over a year, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, for sure. I'll hit him up on, on Slack. Cool. So, or Twitter. So uh, that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dolan. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.